few months ago, uh, preach an overview series on the book of Jonah, which is the book that if you're in the Women of the Word Bible study, you will be studying over the next four months. And so what I thought I would do, and my wife and I had planned this together, is before you get into too far into that book, I just provide kind of an overview message of what God has to say to us in the book of Jonah. So if you want to turn to the book of Jonah, you can do that. We've also got all the scriptures up on the screen for you today as well. One of the things I did when I examined this book again was to ask, well, what's the thing that's the easiest to overlook? What's the thing that a bunch of women, when they gather to study this, might not think about? And I, I identified one major theme that I thought probably could be overlooked, and also, if it were overlooked, would be to the great detriment of understanding the book, and that is simply this, that God judges the nations. God judges the nations. So today we're going to take a look at Jonah as a lesson for God's national judgment and national mercy. Around the time that Nineveh is being the Nineveh we see in the book of Jonah, there's another king around that time named Hammurabi. You've probably heard about him in Hammurabi's codes. And he used to do something rather clever. He would dam... I believe it was the Euphrates, yes, the Euphrates River. And in damming the Euphrates River, he would send all of this water back onto his own lands and fertilize all of his crops, right? And then he would break the dam and flood all of the crops of his enemies downriver. So in one action, he took care of his people while also overcoming, overwhelming, destroying his enemies. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so the idea here is, is that God uses kings and kingdoms for his purposes, like Hammurabi used the Euphrates, only the kings and kingdoms of the world throughout all of history are not a river to God that he must dam. It's a little stream of water in his hand that he turns however he pleases. Another helpful verse to introduce this idea of God over as judge of the nations is Job 12, 23 through 25, which says, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding. This would be a very interesting verse to spend some time meditating and praying upon. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. It's interesting. In 1 Timothy 2, Timothy tells all the men to pray for the leaders, to pray for the emperor and so forth. If you read that verse in Job, you might understand why. Because leaders who have no understanding and wander around in a trackless waste are extremely bad for all of us. Job says, He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunk man. So it's a good thing to think about. It's not a fun thing to think about, but it's a good thing to think about. Uh, This idea that God causes nations to rise and to fall according to his great pleasure. It's not necessarily a fun thing to think about, but it's a good thing to think about. And it's important to think about because because one of the primary book lessons in the book of Jonah is that God's sovereignty, this is key, God's sovereignty over the nations does not permit any kind of fatalism because... How a nation responds, this is the lesson of Jonah, how a nation responds to God's judgment, to God's word, matters a great deal. There's no room for fatalism in the church when talking about the nations. There's no room for fatalism in the church when talking about the future of this or that country. There's no room for indifference. Because how a nation responds to God's word actually does matter a great deal. We see that. That's one of the main lessons 
in the book of Jonah. Now look with me in verse 1 of chapter 1. The very beginning of the book begins by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So I just asked a bunch of questions when I read that verse, and I'm going to show you the questions that I asked and the answers that I found. And the first one is this. What does God mean when he says, for their evil has come up before me? What does God mean by that? He uses the same phrase in discussing Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18.20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. So what do you think it means for God to say something like, their outcry of their sins is very great, or their evil has come up before me? Well, I think there are three things going on, just real quickly. Number one, we examine God's word. We see that God has a council of angels who go around the earth reporting back to him. And so in one respect, you have this idea. The angels are like, hey, uh, what about Nineveh? It's not looking so great in Nineveh. Number two could be a reference. uh, Secondly, we could think of this as a reference to the prayers and the pleas of the innocent victims in Nineveh. Even if those victims called out to a God they did not know, we know as we study God's word that even godless victims, when they call out to God, God hears them. You see in Genesis 4.10, Something similar where God says of Cain, who of course wasn't godless, but you get the point anyway. He says that after Cain killed Abel, he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So there's this sense in which the shedding of innocent blood calls out to God from the ground. It could also mean that the sins themselves have reached a maximal level of offensiveness to God. In Genesis 15, 16, God says something to the effect that the Amorites' sin has not yet reached its full measure, as if God has some sort of line at which once the sins cross that line, he is ready to enact judgment. And we know when we read the book of Jonah that Nineveh was 40 days away from destruction. Whatever whatever God means by this has risen to this point, it means that they're 40 days away from destruction. Something has definitely triggered the wrath of God in an impending sense. Now look back at that verse again. Jonah 1, verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What do we mean by evil here? People do all kinds of bad stuff. What, what is the evil referenced here? Is it just general evil? Is this tax evasion that he's talking about here? Like, uh, you know, it, it, is it, is it uh, ordering a kid's meal at, uh, at uh, you know, Chipotle when you're not a kid? Like, is that the kind of infringement we're talking about here? Actually, when we examine the totality of data presented to us in the scriptures about what sorts of sins trigger divine judgment over nations... We have three basic categories. And the first one would be violence against the weak. Violence against the weak. The Assyrians were, and now, now this is saying something considering the times. You've got to remember, these are brutal times, right? Brutal times. The Assyrians were like so far above in their brutality, even for those times. They would cut off legs and arms and noses and tongues and ears and testicles. And they would gouge out the eyes of their prisoners. And they would burn small children alive. And they bragged about it. They regarded it as their divine right. Um, You can find actually archaeological records of kings celebrating, Assyrian kings celebrating their brutality. And a couple of those records I'll read to you here. This is a king, I forget which one, celebrating his, his uh, brutality. He says, I flayed, which means to, to remove a person's skin while they're still alive in strips. 
I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives alive, defeated in a battle on the plain with 322 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool and the rest and the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountain swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off heads of their fighters and built a tower before their city with their heads. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. In strife I, in conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others of their noses, ears, and other extremities. I gouged out many eyes. I made a pile of the living and one of heads. And I hung their heads on trees around the city. So we're asking, what triggers the wrath of God over a nation? One of them would be violence over the weak. Number two, sexual sin. Uh, Nineveh was a city like Ephesus in that it was ruled by goddess worship. And wherever you saw goddess worship, you typically saw uh, cultic prostitution, institutionalized sexual deviancy, and so forth. And we're told in God's word in Colossians 3, 5 through 6, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, And here's Paul's reason. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So that would be another thing that we could say could trigger divine wrath over a nation. Violence toward the weak related to that, actually, in many respects, is sexual sin. And the third would be dishonoring parents. We see throughout the scriptures that that is a trigger in and of itself. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, Honor your father and mother, what? That it may go well with you and you live long in the land. Meaning, if you stop doing that, you will not live long in the land. So what's the third question? What does the judgment look like? When the judgment falls, because we're just doing kind of a systematic study of God's judgment on a nation. And we've asked, what does it mean for the sins to come up before him? What are the sins he's especially provoked by? And now, what does the judgment actually look like? Well, sometimes it looks like annihilation, but usually subjugation. So there were seven enemies of Israel at the, toward the beginning of the Bible that were essentially wiped off the face of the earth. Like, like their genetic code no longer exists, kind of wiped off. Uh, In the case of these people, God simply annihilated them. But most of the time, God's judgment of a nation involves a great downfall of status and power and security and freedom. And he usually allows one of their existing enemies to conquer them. And how that goes really just depends on who's conquering you. In World War II, God certainly judged Germany for its many sins. How did it go for Germany? Well, we can say that Germany's never been what they were before in terms of status and influence and wealth and so forth. But we could also say that how it went for Germany depended a lot on who occupied them. You know, it, it, how it went for the Germany that was occupied by allied forces went one way, and how it went for Germany that was occupied by the Soviet Union went another way. What, what does the judgment of God look like upon a nation? Sometimes annihilation, most of the time subjugation, Most of the time, an existing enemy takes you out and rules you. And the consequence of that, as we study scripture, is everything from subjugation and exile to castration and slavery. It's it's hard to know. It's really hard to know what it'll look like. Sometimes total destruction. A lot of times, centuries of slavery and subjugation. But before that, we're still asking, what does judgment look like? 
That's sort of like when the hammer really falls. But before that, there are usually warning signs. So because sin bears natural consequences, and also because God is faithful to allow us to experience consequences as a warning, as a nation gets more and more entrenched in its sin, the natural consequences of those sins begin to show up in more and more obvious ways. And to those who are paying attention, things begin to look unsustainable. The cracks in the foundation start to emerge. And this is God's kindness. God's God's giving evidence that this approach to life is not working for you. Again, back to Job chapter 12. Uh, He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges them and leads them away. That's sort of the big thing. But before that, he takes understanding away from the chiefs of the people and makes them wander around. Uh, They grope around and stagger like a drunken man. So indeed, this is important to understand, ladies. How, How did Jonah just arrive and suddenly they're ready to hear what he had to say? Right? Well, one of the archaeological pieces of work that you would need to do to kind of understand that is just to go to all these, this, this particular school of ancient archaeology called Assyriology, Assyriology, or Assyrianology, and uh, listen to like what they have to say about this time. And there are a couple of renowned Assyrianologists who have done a lot of work on what was this city like before it fell, because it did eventually fall. I'll get to that in a minute. And, and this is what you've got going on. Why did, how did it work that Jonah just showed up and they believed what he had to say? We just saw how brutal they've been. Well, by the time Jonah arrives in Nineveh, the city and indeed the whole Assyrian empire was looking extremely unstable. When Jonah comes to Syria, the situation was this. The Assyrian king Shalmaneser uh, III, he resided in one capital city and he was dying. His son was commissioned as the new crown prince. But there was another son, and disobedience to fathers always shows up. It always shows up. Another son gathered 27 other cities, and they were rebelling against the other son. And so there was all this infighting, and the nation was really significantly divided. They had entered a serious period of decline also because there had been a plague in 765 B.C., a peasant's revolt, For four years from 763 to 759 BC, a second plague in 759, and, and this is key, although it won't sound like key to you, a solar eclipse, uh, which you can read about, you can trace back, that occurred in uh, 763 BC. One of the renowned Assyrianologists, he says this about the solar eclipse, because he's read all of the Assyrian literature about what they thought of when solar eclipses happened. Wiseman is the guy's name, and he said this. The king, this is what it would have meant to them to see a solar eclipse. The king will be deposed and killed. A worthless fellow will seize the throne. Rain from heaven will flood the land. The city's walls will be destroyed. And at least once, right around the time, right before or maybe even as Jonah arrives in Nineveh, there is for them this heavenly signal that this empire's time is shortened. So when we examine, well, what does it look like when God judges a nation? I mean, kind of the end, how it lands is hard to predict. But there are always warning signs. God is faithful in individuals' lives, in the lives of nations, to say, does this look like it's working for you? Right? Okay, so what about America? Obviously, that would be a direct application to be made out of this sermon. What about America? Well, have our sins risen up before God? Is there innocent blood calling out to him from the ground? And obviously we must answer in the affirmative with 40 million abortions recorded and many, many more chemical abortions having taken place that aren't reported. And what about sexual sins? Is our country so sexually deviant as to provoke the wrath of God? And what about honoring our fathers and mothers? Are we honoring them or are we systematically exposing their nakedness like Ham did to Noah? Which is what critical theory is. It's behind critical theory is one person. He is the critic, the accuser. 
And the whole idea, the whole idea is to, with an obsession of power, expose the nakedness of our fathers, who, by the way, really are naked and really are drunk and really were sinners. But there's a right way to go about that and a wrong way to go about that. No one's arguing that Noah wasn't naked. That's not the argument. That's not the argument about our parents. That's not the argument about our forefathers. It's an argument about how we go about dealing with their nakedness that makes the difference. Okay, what about our leaders? Do our leaders seem more confused and twisted in on themselves? Does the, does the pool of leadership seem to be exceedingly shallow and, quite frankly, gross? And there's one additional factor, as we're talking about America, that I did not mention about judgment yet. And that is, is that God appears in scriptures to give people more tolerance who don't know better. And he gives people who do know better less tolerance. And the truth is, is that the nation of Assyria lived in a kind of moral darkness that we do not. You know, we just don't. I mean, just statement of fact. It's not all going to be depressing today, by the way. Because Jonah's not depressing, right? Uh, we, we have a level of insight and light about the truth of God that, that Assyria could never have claimed. For instance, why does naming yourself to be a victim get you automatic preferential treatment in our culture? That is not historically normative. It, historically, if you're the victim, you're cursed. You did something to deserve it. You're, you're in the wrong. That's, that's the history of the world. Why, in Western civilization, when you either are or pres- are presenting yourself as a victim, do you get immediate preferential treatment? Because that's what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches us to be kind to victims. It's just that when we jettison God's word, we have no way of knowing who the victims really are. But the instinct to treat people well who are victims or who claim to be victims, that is evidence that we actually know things about God's word that really almost no other nation in the history of the world, no other civilization in the history of the world is. We, the, 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 the problem is, is that we know better and we show consistently that we know better over the last two years we've shown that we're willing literally to put pull the e-brake on our economy literally drive it off the rails in order to save a group of people's lives who are at the very end of their lives and frankly in just basic objective economic terms have very little difference with a fetus right like to be homebound, to be hospitalized as an 86-year-old, it's like, why do we assign, why have we decided they have value? Why, why have we decided that? That is not historically normative. We've decided it because we know better, because we've been informed by the gospel that a person's worth does not equal their capacity to contribute. That's not what makes a person valuable. They're valuable because God made them. And we have demonstrated over the last two years that we are willing to go to extreme lengths to protect people who are not much different. Aren't much different, to be honest, than what we see in the womb of a woman who is pregnant. You talk about viability. Friends, I've done, I grew up doing ministry in nursing homes. That was not always the experience as a little kid. I'm so glad my parents forced me not only to do it, but to love the elderly and to be patient and to confront my own judgments and my own trusting in my strength and all of that by just sitting with people. But here's the deal. Let's just be super clear. You want to talk about viability. Remove the medicines, remove the oxygen, remove the pills, remove the Lasix that treats congestive heart failure, 
and you don't have a viable human being. You've got, you've got this thing going on right now where we say, in a very odd way, suddenly, this disease, which primarily affects people who are already quite sick, we will do everything we can to take care of them. And in doing literally everything we can, a testimony is rising up against us. Because there's another group of people in the wombs of mothers who are, we're not doing anything to protect. There's, there's this, this problem of knowing better. It's, it's probably the biggest concern. We are not Assyrians when it comes to violence. I don't think we're even Assyrians when it comes to uh, when it comes to sexual immorality. But this problem of knowing better and the problem of abortion seem to me to be very heavy weights before the Lord. Um, there's been this inviolable doctrine also emerging from the gospel, but twisted related to personal physical autonomy. We've decided influenced by Christian ethics that human beings should have physical autonomy, which is why slavery was wrong. And so that has twisted into my body, my choice, which when used to kill another child in favor of our sexual unrestraint is entirely sacrosanct. It's the gospel. My body, my choice, even if it means killing another human being. And now, my body, my choice, no longer applies in the world of the vaccine mandate. Where literally, no one else will be harmed. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be even-handed, not, not fear-mongering. And I'm looking at all the data and asking, where are we? He says, God says, not only, he says in, in verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's the lesson, another lesson God wants us to understand, and he includes it in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Your, our greatness is no security, neither was it for Nineveh's. Nineveh was a great city. We are an extremely stable nation. The most stable nation in the history of the world. It won't matter at all when God decides to judge a country. Revelation 18, just let me read eight verses to you. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with the mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, and a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. Same language as we see in Jonah. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in a cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come on a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So point number one, God judges the nations. Tried to think about, well, what does that look like? Point number two, God extends mercy to the nations. 
You know, look at Second Chronicles. If you've got your Bibles, look at Second, or it's up here. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. This has been a cumbersome verse in my life. I'll tell you why. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So applying this text, let me tell tell you why it's been cumbersome. I want to apply this text. Every person in every country, by the way, should want to apply this text. I want to apply this text, but I dare not apply it as it is expressly written. Why? Well, because we are not, in a national sense, God's people, America, is not, in a national sense, God's people, in the way that Israel was during the time that God made this promise to Solomon. And so you cannot simply say that America is my people. And you can't even necessarily say that Christian repentance will lead to national repentance. Rome was on a relative high point in their uh, uh, their, uh, undertaking of the gospel, their acceptance of the gospel when it was destroyed. But here's what I would tell you about this verse. The book of Jonah shows us that there is more... There is a non-covenantal application of this verse. While covenants are extraordinarily important in the scriptures, God does not need to have a particular covenant with a particular nation in order to show them mercy. That's the lesson of Nineveh. In fact, God's mercy is ultimately an expression of a covenant he has made with himself. And so they are no friends of God And God has not made a covenant with them or their fathers. And their evil is enormous and piled up before them, before God. God extends mercy to Nineveh. He does. I I read you, I I went through the, the effort to read you those Assyrian documents boasting in cruelty. Because I want your, I want to give you some spiritual whiplash now when you realize. God was concerned about these people. He wanted to extend them mercy. And he did. Look at Jonah 3. We'll, we'll skip all the, the fun ocean stuff, right? You can, ladies, you can deal with that on your own. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That'll be key. We'll look at that in a moment. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he's one day into his mission. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast. And put on sackcloth from the greatest to them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh in verse 6. And he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The three acts of mercy that I can see in the text toward Nineveh. The first one is he softened them up through many providential and circumstantial difficulties. He tilled the soil of their hearts with difficulties, national difficulties, national uncertainty, national calamities. Two, he sent and resent Jonah. He sent and resent Jonah. Jonah's name means dove. And we think his father's name, Amittai, is related to the Hebrew word for truth. 
literally God sent truth and beauty to the city of Nineveh. He literally spent, sent someone whose name basically means love and truth. Dove is always an expression of love, of peace. Grace and truth, peace and truth, beauty and truth. God sent beauty and truth, grace and truth to a city that more than deserved destruction. We can get lost and think that the main character of the book of Jonah is Jonah. I mean, the title is a bit misleading. The main character in the book of Jonah is God. You're going to learn so much more about God in the book of Jonah than you'll learn about Jonah. So what we see here is this. Did Jonah, when he walked into the city in chapter 3, preach the truth in love? I'm not writing it out entirely. I doubt it. Did God, through Jonah, preach the truth in love? Absolutely he did. Absolutely. He sent a dove to them. He sent peace to them. He sent peace with truth. And that's the third thing. So first of all, he softened them up with circumstantial circumstances. Secondly, he sent truth and love to them to be proclaimed. And third, he dealt plainly with them. Yet, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. When God expresses his love to people or nations, he speaks plainly to them about their sin and the judgment which awaits them. Now, what does this have to say for our country? Okay, first of all, are there signs that our sins are piling up before God? And secondly, do we suspect at some point that he will execute, execute judgment on this country like he has executed judgment on countries forever? And third, what should we do? I'll tell you one thing to not do. Don't assume that someone who preaches or cares about the downfall of this nation is a nationalist when they are possibly just feeling the same thing God feels. See, a godly concern for the destruction of a nation is a godly concern. That's not the same as being a partisan. That's not the same as being overly political. That's not the same as being a nationalist. A godly concern for the downfall of a nation is a godly concern for the downfall of a nation. It, it, it's meant to match God's concern. So how do you know if what you've got in situations is some kind of nationalistic make America great again thing or godly? Well, it's, it, the way you can tell a godly concern for anything is when they speak the truth in love, when they actually call the nation to repent. Anyone who talks about America without talking about repentance probably is guilty of some nationalistic problems. But listen to what's being said. Here's just a general rule. Unfortunately, in our Christian culture at this moment, it is actually more acceptable for the average evangelical Christian to proclaim love for a country they don't live in than for the country they do live in. That's what the cool kids want us to think. It is more acceptable for you to say you love Afghanistan than it is for you to say you love America. And the message of Jonah even gets twisted to mean that, which it doesn't mean at all. But secondly, look for how that love is expressed. If the love is, oh man, if, if, if all of those liberals or all of those conservatives just stop, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's some kind of nationalism. But if the message is, we must repent for our many sins. Or they must repent or so on. That's a different deal. That's godly concern. The thing that we want to rule out here is, is some kind of fatalism that masks itself, that masks itself in a godliness that isn't godly. And that's the fatalism, or maybe even contempt for a country. Maybe even the feeling like we should get what we deserve. That's not what God's thinking. That's not how it works. God cares about the nations, even this one. And he desires that none should perish, but that all should repent. And he is slow to anger. And he does soften up 
cultures with hard circumstances. And he does send Christians, obedient servants, to these places to tell them to repent. And he does actually listen when they do repent. Well, what's the main point, point three, is that in order for God to go soft on Nineveh, he had to go hard on Jonah. In order for God to go soft on Nineveh, he had to go hard on Jonah. First of all, the call to go preach to Nineveh is a hard call. God said, go to the place where they flay people and tell them that they're going to be destroyed. And then he is hard on Jonah in insisting, in insisting, insisting, and in insisting that, in a way that only God can do, that Jonah obey. Okay, so in order for God, this is a gospel pattern, in order for God to be soft on Nineveh, he had to be hard on Jonah. Now look in your Bibles or up at the screen at Matthew twelve forty, Because for God to go soft on America, he's going to be, have to be hard on us. But here's the good news. Almost all the hard work is already done. Matthew twelve forty, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What do I mean when I say most of the hard work is already done? Christ died. He, he gave himself up to death to save the nations. And it's time when we talk about the nations to start including ours in our heart, in our head, when we say that. Christ died to save the nations. Ephesians 2.12 tells us, 2.12 through 18, I'm not going to read it, running out of time, that in his death, he made it possible for us to preach through him or with him, to those who were near and to those who were far off. So here's the idea, the gospel idea of Jonah. Jesus is the better Jonah. What Jonah did reluctantly, Jesus did willingly. At least three times in the book of Jonah, one mentioned on point and two mentioned not so on point, not Uh, not mentioned like completely. Jonah is willing to die three times in order to not see Nineveh repent. Jesus is the better Jonah. What Jonah did reluctantly, Jesus did willingly. Jesus chose to die to save people all over the world. What Jonah did partially, Jesus is the better Jonah, what Jonah did partially, Jesus did completely. When a people repent in the name of Jonah, their repentance is fleeting. Right? And we see that. Nineveh would be destroyed something like a hundred years after they repented. You see, repentance under the law, repentance under fear, is always superficial repentance And it's always short-lived repentance. But I don't think we think that way about Jesus, do we? We don't think that when people repent to Jesus, it's short-lived and superficial. That would undermine our whole understanding of the gospel and so on and so forth. No, Jonah did something partially. He, He brought a message of the law and people stepped in line for a while. But when Jesus goes and saves a people, he saves them. He saves them. Now, I said something very important just a a couple paragraphs ago where I said that almost all of the hard work is already done. So I'm going to connect the the line of logic real quickly. In order for God to be soft on Nineveh, he had to be hard on Jonah. In order for God to be soft on America, he's going to have to be hard on us. But the good news is almost all of the hard work is already done, that being Jesus. Now, this is the controversial place, right? Because I'm saying that Jesus, almost all the work is done. What's that about? Well, in a way, 
You could say that all of the work is done by Jesus. But in another way, you could say that almost all of the work is done by Jesus. So would you look in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to close out Ephesians with this sermon as well. Uh, Won't add any more time. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Paul's ending his spiritual battle uh, discussion and says, praying at all times in verse 18, in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, but also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul thought there was still work to be done. He, did, he, he said, now Paul actually says later in Colossians that his sufferings are filling up the sufferings of Christ. What does he mean by all of this? He means that, yes, Jesus has paid for everything. He has paid for the redeeming of the nations. But some of what he has paid for is for men like Paul and Peter and you and me to speak up and declare the gospel. So when I say that almost all the hard work is done, it's like, well, in one sense, it's all done. But some of the work that Jesus did was to get you and I to stop being Jonah-like and start being Jesus-like. Some of what Jesus did, some of what Jesus paid for, is to get us in the position where Paul's at. Where we say there is still work to be done. And that work matters. And it it, it actually does affect the course of history. And of course it affects the course of eternity. And there is work to do. And that work is that we must declare the precious nation-changing gospel to whatever nation God calls us to or places us in. And we must endure the hardships that come with that. In Paul's case, even prison. And even when the culture emphatically says, shut up and sit down, even when they say that with chains, as they said to Paul in Ephesians 6, we must keep telling people that Jesus has come and died and was raised And that he requires all peoples everywhere to submit to him. And we must teach them to obey all that Jesus has taught. So in this way, there's still work to be done. But that work has been paid for by Jesus. And Jesus has made it possible for us to be transformed to apathetic, fatalistic Jonas. Into Jesus's. Who weep. Over a nation's rise or who weep over a nation's impending destruction as he wept over Jerusalem and who go and preach the gospel to people time and time again. And this transformation that Jesus has paid for is made clear by the way Joppa figures into both of the stories of the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, Noah uses, Jonah uses Joppa to run away from the Gentiles. And, of course, he just winds up with more Gentiles because God's in charge. In the New Testament, Joppa is the place where God starts the Gentile mission through the life of Peter. So what we have to do, even when it's hard, is to join Paul as he spoke to the Athenians in Acts 17 and say the times of ignorance. We say this to our country. We say this to whatever country God calls us to say it to. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance of this by raising that man from the dead. And that sounds like a hard message. It isn't a hard message. It's the message that produces repentance. Even sometimes repentance at a national scale. So I have a question for you. Have you written America off? Have you ascended to some highly unbiblical strata in which you think that because you are the citizen of two kingdoms, this one doesn't matter? Have you decided that you have no responsibilities, even though you can 
identify the things, the signs, have you decided that you have no responsibility to say hard things to people and encouraging them to turn and repent and trust Christ? Have you just written off every notion of political activism as being icky and ungodly when the book of Jonah obviously shows us that God can use transformation of leaders for his sake? Are you praying for your leaders? One of the things I think we ought to pray for is that uh, suddenly this great sin of abortion has been, for most, for many Christians, relatively neglected. And then suddenly, when there's a chance it might get us out of a vaccine we don't agree with, we're suddenly really interested in abortion. Like, again, lots of we-know-betters showing up during this time. Well, I read a scripture to you last week, just a promise of God blessing the nations. And I'll close out and introduce communion with this. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around, and see, they all gather together. They all come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult because the the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. And then Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. As we partake in the table, can we think about the fact that Jesus has a love for all of the nations, even ours? How dare say it, even ours? And as we partake of this table in which we say, this is beautiful, certain truth, Jesus has purchased a level, a kind of repentance really changes things. If the repentance produced by Jonah's message produced some change, how much more so does the repentance that Jesus purchased with his blood and his body claim? How much more repentance does it produce? How much more hope should we have? For, for the peoples of the world, when we partake of the blood and body of Christ and say, you died. To make the nations your inheritance. May it be so, God. May it be so. On earth as it is in heaven. We pray. God, bless our time.